All right. Well, even though we still have three full chapters left in the book of Daniel, we have really come kind of to the end. This is the final vision and prophecy of the book as a whole. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all related and are really just one long extended vision slash prophecy given to Daniel. In our chapter today, chapter 10 is very much introductory to the vision. It doesn't really get into the vision itself. Rather, it introduces the main characters uh, as far as the giving and receiving, but it also kind of sets up the context for the vision that is to come. In chapter 11, which although it is not the longest chapter in the book of Daniel, it's the second longest, just slightly shorter than chapter 2. However, the vision that comes, that begins in chapter 11, is by far the longest vision in the whole book of Daniel, and it even kind of spills over into chapter 12. It very much parallels the vision in chapter 8, which talks about the Persian Empire, the coming of the Greeks, and eventually Antiochus Epiphanes, but it does it with a lot more detail. Um, in fact, it, it goes into such detail, it, it has really divided people into either two camps, faith or doubt. Um, this is a chapter, or at least next week, is a chapter that people just go, there's, there's no way this could have been written um, until these events had already occurred. It is just far too accurate. Um, but if your God is the God who decrees things, it is a small thing for Him to reveal to His people what He has decreed. Lastly, all of this culminates in the shortest chapter of the book of Daniel, chapter 12, in which the vision in chapter 11 kind of spills over into. It's really one and the same vision. However, with chapter 12, the focus of the vision really moves on to the end of days and the resurrection and the final judgment. And with that, the book of Daniel is finished. So we have uh, three weeks, Lord willing. We'll see if we can do it in three weeks. But we are really kind of at the end in, in a sense. As far as our chapter today, as I said, it introduces us to the main characters as far as the giving and the receiving of the vision. It also sets up the context for what is to come. However, more than that, this chapter, although very much introductory, although it really doesn't get into the vision itself, yet on its own, it is a fascinating chapter. And it raises all kinds of interesting questions about the spiritual realm. Um, and these are not necessarily just kind of theoretical. It, it very much applies to us today. It, it makes us consider uh, the spiritual things that are happening all around us. It's interesting that on the one hand, many of the visions in the book of Daniel have to do with very fascinating earthly events and fascinating earthly figures. And yet with chapter 10, it's almost as if the veil of the spiritual realm is pulled back and we see these other forces, either for good or evil, that are guiding and participating in the events that you and I see with our eyes. This raises, as I said, all kinds of questions, especially those that do relate directly to us. In our day-to-day -day battle with sin, 
to what degree and in what way is that influenced by what takes place in the heavenly places? How are we ourselves participants in this heavenly spiritual warfare? I took the title of my sermon today from Ephesians 6.12, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, Daniel 10 gives us a bit more of a peek of what exactly that looks like. How exactly does that take place? It shows us this is not fairy tales. This is not the cartoon where the the good angel says this and the bad angel says this. This is a very real matter of our life, and it very much exists, and we are participants in it whether we know it or not. This chapter then, on the one hand, exhorts us to take this all very seriously. The world has done a great job, and I think Satan has done a great job, of making Satan a big joke. You can see people in Halloween in the red costume, and he has a tail and a poker, and it's all very silly, right? It's, it's, it's laughable. He's very much convinced the world that he does not really exist. That's kind of for silly Christians who hang out at Grace Church and meet there in the afternoon, right? Although we don't live in fear of demons, brothers and sisters, it is very much a reality of our life. On the one hand, we do not want to give too much to it, and neither do we want to give it too little. Furthermore, although there is much to be exhorted from all this truth, there is much comfort from it as well. The Lord has given His angels, His heavenly host, charge to protect and preserve His church. In fact, there are scriptures that intimate that angels are at the public gatherings of the church in their Lord's Day worship. You might not think about that, but they could be standing here this very moment protecting us even now as we worship. We will touch a bit upon the idea of guardian angels, very, very little. I won't answer all your curiosities, but I do like the opinion of what some older writers said. This should comfort you. They said, it cannot be gathered so clearly from the Scriptures whether a single angel is assigned to each individual person. For us, it is enough to know that often an entire army of them have been put in charge of guarding one saint. Yes, there are things like demons out there, and they would love nothing more than to sift each and every one of us and bring shame upon the name of Christ by destroying this local assembly. But not only do we have the Lord, who is Himself enough, but He has also sent His angels as ministers to guard and protect His church. On the one hand, we do not pray to angels as mediators. We do not venerate them, which is really to give acts of worship to them but we do thank God for them, and we appreciate the role that they play. Well, all of that to say, that's the topic for today. We have a lot of things to unpack and to break down, not just with this passage, but with some passages in the New Testament as well. Um, what I want to do, the way I want to do this, is unpack what I have, what I have called four identities. That's how we'll look at this passage. There are four identities we need to determine who they are, and then once we do that, we will kind of step back and take some big picture.
picture application, okay? If you are a note taker, there are the following figures who we need to determine who they are. First, the identity of the man clothed in linen. The identity of the man clothed in linen. Secondly, the identity of this Michael figure who is mentioned here. This is the first time in all of Scripture that he is mentioned, all right? Michael, who is he? Now, you might think, Pastor, uh, mystery solved. We all know who, that's Michael the archangel. We'll see. You'll explain, I'll explain what I mean by that when we get there. There's reason for discussing that, all right? Thirdly, the identity of the prince of Persia. The identity of the prince of Persia no lame jokes about the game later, okay? All you nerdy gamers, I know Jason was really sad when I said that. The Prince of Persia. And then lastly, although it's not in the chapter directly, I would, I would connect it, the identity of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 7. This also connects to things we've talked about with the Antichrist in previous passages. So I want to look at that because I think it's related. The identity of the restrainer or the one who restrains, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7. All right? Well, let's go ahead and begin then with the man clothed in linen. Who is he? But for the sake of context, let's start from the very beginning in verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. This is basically a big picture overview of what lays ahead. Daniel will receive a vision, and he says it is true and one of great conflict. Great conflict is probably not referring to the wars and battles, which are mentioned in chapter 11 in the vision but probably referring to Daniel's own struggle as he is fasting and praying for a period of three weeks. Verse 2, Daniel says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Here, Daniel switches to the first person, and he sets up the events leading to the vision. This time of mourning and fasting is leading up to the vision that he is to receive, as we shall see. It doesn't happen after the vision is given. As to why Daniel is mourning and fasting, we're not exactly told. The angel does say in verse 12 that Daniel, quote, set his heart on understanding this, and on humbling himself before God, he's, he's seeking understanding about something, he's seeking the Lord, but we're not exactly told what about. Some suggest that he's seeking understanding of the previous vision given in chapter 9. It seems a little bit late to now be seeking understanding. That was two years before this vision. It seemed kind of random that only now he would start seeking that. Others suggest, and I think this is right, that really this has to do with the state of affairs back in the land of Judah. Two years before the events of this chapter, some of the exiles had gone back to the land. Cyrus gave his decree that they could return, and he even gave them certain elements of the temple so that they could rebuild 
the temple. However, when they come back, they are not necessarily received with open arms by those who had taken up residence in their absence, and they return to a hostile environment. For example, in Ezra 3, we are told, quote, Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God, the, the year after, so the year two of Cyrus, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 21 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So the year after they return, they begin the work of rebuilding the temple. The first thing they did do was build the altar. Now they're working on the temple as a whole. However, once they do that, the others who had lived in the land come and say, let us join with you. They say, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Syria, who brought us here. Zerubbabel and the others reply, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will build together to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then we read this in the following verse. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, all that started about a year before this chapter takes place. And it may be that news of this, this troubling uh, events in Judah has come back to Daniel, and, and he is confused. Lord, you, you said they were going to return and build the temple, but now there's opposition. How can this be in light of your promises? And in that sense, he is seeking understanding. Well, in verses 4 through 10, we finally meet this man who is clothed in linen, though he looks like no man that I have ever seen. It says in verse 4, on the 24th day of the month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphas. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the green gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw this vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Very similar there to uh, the companions of Saul of Damascus on the road, right? Verse 8, So I was left alone and saw this great vision, Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Well, who is this man in linen? There are basically three different views about who he is. First, there are those who argue that this is simply an angel. And historically, I believe that it was the Jews who were more likely to take that interpretation. 
And while it is true the description here fits many of the visions of the Lord found in the Old and New Testament, surely this description could fit an angel. Uh, It's not as though it says he was seated on a throne. He's just like glowing like the sun. I'm sure that's what angels look like to some degree. Furthermore, his being an angel would fit with what will be said in verse 11, namely that he was sent unto Daniel. Being sent is very much something that is true of angels and not the Lord. Andrew Willett, in fact, very pointedly says, Christ sends, he is not sent. Furthermore, this figure says he needed the help of Michael the archangel to overcome the prince of Persia in the following verses. Again, it is argued this could not be therefore said of Yahweh who would not need any help at all. Therefore, it is argued this figure is an angel. On the other hand, it is argued, and I would say probably by the majority of Reformed expositors, older and some modern, that this figure is none other than the Lord Himself. For example, it is argued that typically in Scripture, this is very true, when you see, first of all, this kind of description, or even this kind of detail of a description, it is often in a vision of the Lord seated on His throne in heaven. It very much, in fact, sounds like John's encounter with Christ in Revelation 1, which is why I had us read that. For example, let me just read a couple verses side by side. You can just listen and and hear the comparisons. John says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. John says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Daniel says, his eyes were like flaming torches. John says, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Daniel says, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Daniel says, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. And then lastly, John says, and he placed his right hand on me, And Daniel says, then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So the parallels of this passage and many others are are of such a close nature, it is argued that, that this must therefore be the Lord. It is just too similar to visions of the Lord and very dissimilar from how angels are typically described. Furthermore, as to the objections that if this were the Lord, he would not be sent, and neither would he need the help of Michael the archangel, these are not entirely insurmountable. For example, even with the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, right, he is sometimes said to be sent. God says in Exodus 23, "'Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way.'" That angel again and again along the way is the angel of the Lord who is the Lord Himself. Furthermore, as far as Michael's coming to his aid, it is argued that this simply speaks of a servant coming to aid his master. That is how E.J. Young takes this. Um, 
I suppose that could be the case, but it does very much seem as though this individual cannot overcome the prince of Persia without Michael's help. So I guess there's kind of a way you can get there, um, but I kind of rather agree with Andrew Willett. He says, it seems a harsh and hard speech in any sense to say that Christ is helped by angels. This brings us then to the third view, which is the one that I adopt and recommend to you. It is held by Andrew Willett, as well as John Gill, and even one modern expositor, James Hamilton Jr., um, argues for its plausibility. He's not very dogmatic one way or another, but he says it's, it's plausible. On this view, the first marvelous figure is the Lord Himself. And again, that matches other descriptions we see in Scripture. It very much seems like this is the Lord. The second figure then is an angel who is sent, possibly the angel Gabriel, who's mentioned elsewhere in the book of Daniel. And typically it is seen that the hand that touches Daniel is the hand of an angel. In fact, Daniel does switch how he speaks a bit. When he speaks of the man in his voice, he speaks of his words. When he says, uh, uh, speaks of the hand, he says, then behold, a hand touched me, or you might expect his hand to touch him. In fact, James Hamilton argues that there are possibly four or even five heavenly figures in this whole vision altogether between chapters 10 and 12. And we'll see, you can read ahead in chapter 12, there, there are multiple uh, persons. There's some on the banks of the river, and there's the voice coming from heaven, okay? As far as chapter 10, Hamilton points out that in verse 16, Daniel speaks of, quote, one who resembled a human being. He says, if Daniel intended his audience to identify the man clothed in linen with whoever touched and spoke to him in verse 16, it would have been an easy thing to do to refer back to the figure described in verses 5 through 6. Since Daniel does not do this, we have a warrant for suggesting that there are at least two figures in Daniel chapter 10. And I would agree with that, except I would argue that the first figure is in verses 5 through 9, and verse 10 and following, starting with the hand, is an angel. And I think it's really only one angel, because he later says, now I am going back. So he's the one who came, okay? All right. Well, that is the first figure. That's the longest one. They get a little bit easier from here, okay? The next to determine is Michael. Who is this Michael? Let's read uh, from this point, verses 11 through 21. Daniel says, He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words." But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. 
And I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there, is, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you understand why I have come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Take a drink of water. As I said, this is the first time that this Michael figure is mentioned in all of Scripture. He is spoken of in verse 13 as Michael, one of the chief princes. In verse 21, as Michael, your prince, meaning Daniel's or really Daniel's people. And then in verse 1 of chapter 12, he is said to be Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Furthermore, he is referred to in Jude as the archangel Michael. And then lastly, in Revelation 12, it describes his fighting with his good angels against Satan and his fallen angels. Now, for my part, I believe that Michael is an archangel, a chief and powerful angel. Um, I think you see a difference that there are princes and kings mentioned in this chapter. Um, those that are princes are engaged in some kind of spiritual warfare, and yet there are kings who are mentioned differently. You might be wondering, well, why do we have to determine that, Pastor? Wasn't that somewhat straightforward? Well, I suppose it is today, but I was very surprised to learn, and perhaps you will be surprised to learn, that perhaps the majority view historically among the Reformed, at least for several centuries, was that Michael is in fact really Christ himself. Now immediately, Jehovah's Witnesses' alarm bells are going off in your mind, because maybe the only people who you ever heard make something along the lines of those connections were the Jehovah's Witnesses, who do think that Christ is really just an angel. That's not what the Reformed are arguing. Rather, they are arguing that just as Christ often appears as the angel of the Lord, right, the captain of the host of the Lord, so also Michael is just another identity for Christ himself. In fact, the name Michael means who is like the Lord. And they argue that it has kind of a deeper meaning, not asking who is like the Lord, but saying this is the one who is like the Lord himself. Now, maybe you've never heard of that. Perhaps at first that seems kind of off the wall to you. It sounded off the wall to me, but I mention it because it is surprising how many Reformed theologians held that view and even Reformed Baptists. It was held by Benjamin Keach, Hansard Knowles, John Gill, and even Charles Spurgeon, at least in one of his sermons. So I mention that because you may encounter it. It's a huge view, so we should at least touch on it. 
We don't want to be dismissive of it. For my part, I am not particularly persuaded by that view that Michael the archangel is the Son of God. I just don't see terribly compelling evidence for it. And if anything, I might explain that position as a bit of an overreaction by the Reformed, perhaps. You know, in the Middle Ages, whether you're talking about Romanists or even among Jews, there was a huge overemphasis on angels. They were seen, and even today by Romanists, as mediators. You should pray to them. They will absolutely deny that they worship angels, but they do venerate them and give them what are essentially acts of worship. Maybe it is that in some of this, the Reformed have just said, look, look, there has been way too much speculation, and perhaps it is best to understand that this angel here is really just Christ himself, okay? Um, I'm not trying to persuade you one way or another, but I just throw that out there. It is a big view historically. Ironically, I find that view overly speculative, which I think is interesting because it's arguing, I think, against speculation, okay? That is the second identity. Michael, I would say, is some kind of chief powerful angel. Third, and briefly then, as to the prince of Persia, or the prince of the kingdom of Persia mentioned in verse 13, as I said, I believe there's a difference between the term prince or princes and kings, which is often used for earthly rulers. I would say this prince is some sort of angelic, fallen angelic being of some kind because he is resisting an angel sent by the Lord. It's interesting that among older Reformed writers, in a similar vein, they typically understand this prince of Persia as some kind of earthly Persian ruler, maybe Cyrus or his successor, Cambyses. A happy exception to that is John Gill, who says that the prince of Persia is, quote, an evil angel, either Satan, the prince and god of this world, or one of his principal angels under him, employed by him to do what mischief he could in the court of Persia against the people of God, the Jews. I think that very much fits with his resisting and being in conflict with what are clearly good angels. And I don't know an earthly ruler that could resist um, an angel. Uh, Daniel talks to this guy and he passes out. So I don't, I don't see that being Cyrus or Cambyses, okay? All right. Lastly, and... Fourthly, although it is not in this passage, nevertheless, I believe it is connected and it relates to our recent discussions about the coming of Antichrist, and that is the identity of the one who restrains him in 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn with me there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll read this for a refresher. Second Thessalonians 2, and we'll read verses 3 through 8. Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, 
displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness as already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Well, there are many options put forth as to who this restrainer is, and you could kind of figure out a way for all of them to kind of work together. I don't know that they're entirely opposed to each other. Some see this as the Spirit. Others suggest this is Christ. Others say maybe this is not so much a person or an individual, but the preaching of the gospel. I believe that that is Calvin's view. For my part, I would argue that this restrainer is a powerful angel, and perhaps even Michael the archangel himself, and I would argue that that fits best not only with what we read in Daniel 10, but in several other passages of the New Testament as well. For example, when we looked at 2 Thessalonians 2, we saw that the restraining of the Antichrist in his eventual revelation has a parallel with the binding of Satan and his eventual loosing in Revelation chapter 20. Well, who binds Satan in Revelation 20? It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over, so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Furthermore, in the parallel to Revelation 20, Revelation 12, the one who cast Satan down not into the abyss but upon the earth are Michael and his angels. It says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the angel in Revelation 20 is not mentioned, at least as far as his name, but it could be Michael the archangel. Furthermore, All of this fits what we see in in Daniel chapter 12, angelic forces resisting and being in some kind of conflict with one another. G.K. Beale says about the restrainer in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, quote, what further favors the angelic identification of the restrainer is the fact that Paul has already alluded to Daniel 11 in verse 4, And the mystery mentioned in verse 5 also ultimately derives from Daniel chapter 2, which is the only place in all of the Old Testament where the word mystery occurs with an eschatological meaning. This enhances even more the possibility that Paul had in mind an angel like that in Daniel 10 who was resisting supernatural evil forces. And if you think about this, this all kind of fits a pattern. There is a prince of Persia, a heavenly being, and there is an earthly king of Persia. 
There is a prince of Greece, and there is also Alexander. Well, there is this, uh, there is Satan, and then there is a very real earthly being, Antichrist, who will come, okay? So that's what I would argue. I just didn't want to, we talked so much about Antichrist, I think there's a connection. I wanted to bring it in there. All right. Well, those are the four identities we needed to figure out. Before we move on to application, let me just briefly summarize the chapter as a whole. Daniel, for reasons which are not quite clear, but probably related to affairs back in Judah, is seeking the Lord by prayer and fasting. From the moment he begins to pray, this angel is sent. However, he is resisted by the prince of Persia for three full weeks, just as Daniel himself is very much battling in prayer. Eventually, at the end of the three weeks, Daniel has an awesome vision of the Lord, and the angel finally comes to him and communicates that he is very beloved and that his prayers have been answered. He even strengthens Daniel so that he can talk, and yet so overwhelming is the presence even of an angel. They talk briefly. He explains he is about to share the revelation, and as soon as he does, he is going to go back and fight with Michael against the prince of Persia, okay? And we will see the, ver- the vision in chapter 11. Well, what should we make about all this, saints? What, what's the Lord's Day meditation? Uh, Dennis is staring towards the ceiling right now, which means he's pondering a lot. What is the, the pondering from all of this? Well, I think there's a lot. Scripture is clear that we do not live in a world that is simply materialistic, nor that while angels do exist, we really don't have any kind of interaction with them in any sense. That's not what you find in Scripture. I would say on the one hand, we need to be be careful to avoid two pitfalls, especially as Reformed folks, I think, overreactions really. On the one hand, there are those out there who attribute just too much to demons. Sanctification is exorcism, right? You are casting out uh, the sin of lust. You are casting out, or I'm sorry, the demon of lust. You are casting out the demon of anger. Everything but yourself is to blame. Good thing there's all these demons out there, right? Sin is very much our fault, And we want to be careful not to attribute everything that happens to a demon. On the other hand, we don't want to give too little to angels or demons as well. And I think there are two things that, well, really one thing that might lead us to do that. One is very much the materialistic air that we live and breathe every single day. I think personally... As Reformed Baptists, we tend to do a pretty good job of this, but I think in some Reformed circles, they are too beholden um, to modern views like that. I know especially, and I don't mean this to badmouth anyone, but in in seminary I encountered among our Presbyterian brothers, um, they are far more reticent to, or they're far more eager to adopt evolution. They are far more reticent to, to... adopt a, a, uh, a worldwide flood, things like that. And similarly, I have found among some kind of a, 
an idea that demons and all that, that happened at the apostolic age, but we don't really see that anymore today, okay? For example, there is an article written by one brother. I don't know his name. I'm sure he's a great guy. I'm, I just disagree with him. Uh, it was in an OPC publication, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As to the question of demon possession, I, I find him to be way too dismissive, or even demon activity. He almost kind of limits it to the apostolic age entirely. He says, I have ministered in Africa on and off since the early 1990s. The overwhelming number of Africans believe in regular interactions with the demonic realm, and a depressing, he says, number of American short-term missionaries come out with a preconceived notion that demonic activity is rampant in Africa. I've seen countless expressions of, quote, demonic activity and have yet to see anything that I believe is genuine biblical demon possession. Many medical problems such as epilepsy are assigned to demons. I remember one time when I took a short-term missionary group into a village to evangelize, we visited one family whose patriarch was a self-professed witch doctor. Quickly, he went into his demonic fit, rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, being thoroughly, quote, possessed. The visitors, both Americans and African church members who were with us, were quite convinced they were seeing demon possession and were getting quite worked up. I quietly moved towards the man who was jerking on the ground and nudged a pointy rock right underneath his shoulder blades. He shifted to the left and kept on jerking and babbling. I moved the rock again, and he jumped up and came after me angrily. I confronted him and everyone there and told him to stop behaving foolishly. A demon wouldn't care if his back was a bit uncomfortable, and if he simply wanted us to go away and leave him alone, he could just say so without trying to act like a crazy person. He sheepishly quieted down and apologized and said that we were welcome to stay and talk. Everyone, Af American and African, would have walked away from the experience firmly convinced that they had seen a demon possession if it hadn't been for a pointy rock, he says. Now, he does not deny that Satan and his angels are real and that we need to beware of them, but he says, our real danger is in being deceived into giving Satan too much credit and power. Furthermore, I should say, I have no doubt that there are many charlatans out there claiming to be great powers who are really just putting on a performance, and there are many medical things which are not demonically caused, all right? Nevertheless, I find him too dismissive of the demonic realm and, and things that can happen. I would say in trying to not give Satan too much, he gives him too little. As far as angels themselves, I would say they are very powerful spiritual beings capable of a great many things. One theologian writes of demons, there remains in them also great power which they use for moving things from one place to another, for causing storms, for shaking buildings and mountains, for polluting the air, for possessing and besetting human beings, and for deceiving our senses. However, he notes, all their power is so restricted to the lower order by providence of God that they cannot do anything without His permission. You see this again and again in Scripture. Demons have to ask for permission. 
Christ told Peter Satan had asked permission to sift him. The legion of demons asked permission that they might go into the herd of swine, and Satan asks permission to tempt Job. They do not have free reign. Their greatest way, I would say, of attacking us is almost certainly in temptation. Indeed, it is our flesh which gives in to sin, but as one writer says, the temptations of the devil are persuasions, soliciting, and stirring ups by which he doth endeavor to draw men into sin and destruction. Satan cannot control your minds, but he can certainly prompt thoughts just as well as I can. If I say elephant, you are now thinking of an elephant in your mind, okay? This is probably the main way that Satan works in unbelievers, not by possession, but by deception. Paul says that the Ephesians, quote, formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Not everyone was formerly possessed, but Satan was at work in them, I would say, by his deceptions. Good angels, however, have a role in this battle as well. The professors of the University of Leiden say that just as demons may prompt evil thoughts, so also, quote, good angels have power to prompt good and holy thoughts. As far as the issue of the order and different kinds of angels and demons, while we want to avoid speculation, yet Scripture does intimate some kind of order among them, even amongst the evil angels. Paul says, again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness. He speaks of rulers and powers. They're kind of different things. And indeed, this seems to be suggested by the fact that there is a prince of the kingdom of Persia and a prince of the kingdom of Greece. As to whether, strictly speaking, there are what are called tutelary angels. Anybody ever heard that term, tutelary? It comes from the old Latin word for tutor, which means guardian, not just someone who helps you with your math, okay? Guardian angels, tutelary angels. As to their existence, Scripture may intimate something along those lines, kind of, in some sense. The Reformed are not of one opinion on this, and several outright reject any notion But there are some who affirm something along those lines, and they argue from Daniel chapter 10. For example, Turretin says of good angels, God frequently uses them for the protection of kingdoms and empires, as appears from Daniel 10 and 11. Similarly, the Leiden professors again say, often many angels are put in charge of a certain type of believer, and often one is put in charge of an entire region or people as appears from the prophecy of Daniel. I think we want to be careful of being overly speculative. Are there lieutenants and captives and colonels on each side? I don't think so. There's some kind of order among them, though. The big thing to draw from all this as we close, brothers and sisters, is not merely that these things exist, that this warfare exists, but that you are engaged engaged in it, Christian, whether you are aware of it or not. We see that very much with Daniel here. He is a participant 
in the struggle that is happening between Gabriel and the prince of Persia. There's a connection between Daniel's prayer and this struggle. John Lightfoot says of this passage, God intended good concerning His temple and His people, but gave not the commission to the angel Gabriel till Daniel had prayed, and then he goes out. Here a wheel on earth moves, the wheel in heaven. It's almost like gears. You're moving something with your prayer, and it has an effect in the heavenly realm. You may be familiar, for example, with the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Remember what follows or what precedes that verse. Remember what the therefore is therefore, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Interestingly, the subtitle of William Gurnall's famous book, The Christian Incomplete Armor, is this, A Treatise of the Saints' War Against the Devil. Christian, do you know that there are demons who wish to sift you? Do you know that there are demons who wish nothing more than to destroy your marriage, to destroy your children, to destroy your church? That's not just a possibility. They're out there. They, they, seek, they seek those things. Be aware of that. You have an enemy. There is a famous dictum of military strategists that says, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Have you ever heard that? No battle plan survives contact with the enemy. The point is this. You can make your battle plans, and those are very necessary. But you're not playing chess against yourself. You don't move here and then go to the other side and say, well, you move here and I'll do that. You are dealing with a real live opponent. They have battle plans of their own. They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. They will seek to exploit those things. And yet, brothers and sisters, I fear that too often we think we are playing spiritual warfare against ourselves. You have a real enemy. And guess what? He has sifted Christians far smarter and far godlier than you in the history of the church. Let us not pretend as though the only thing we fight against is our flesh. We have many enemies, brothers and sisters. In closing, this is a fascinating chapter. I wish we could really have maybe a couple more uh, sermons on this altogether. But in closing, as the hymn goes, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His wrath we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Satan is a defeated foe. And though he is very active, he can do nothing but what your loving heavenly Father permits, and even what your Father permits will turn out towards your good. Furthermore, the Lord has sent his angels to guard you. They are here even now. You can't see them, but we know that they are here. They surround the church. Take comfort from this. The Lord protects you, 
and He has sent these powerful angels, these things that make Christians pass out when they talk to them, are there to protect you. I would say, I don't mean to frighten any of you, I hope I don't get phone calls from parents who are like, my kid can't sleep because of what you said, Pastor Ryan. But if you do not know the Lord yet, I would simply say you are exposed to the power of Satan and his demons. There are many reasons to come to Christ. (laughs) There are thousands, but that is one more reason to come to Christ. Those who are not in Christ are still in the kingdom of darkness. They have not the protection of the Lord and His good angels. That is one more reason to come, even today, to Christ. Not only will He pardon you and give you eternal life, He will protect you so that those forces can do nothing to you but what He permits. I pray that today all of us would remember the truth that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And for those of you here who have not yet come to the Lord, that that would be one more of the many thousand infinite reasons to come to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how often, Lord, we are engaged in civilian affairs. How often do we not take up the armor of God or do not take up the full armor of God? How often, Lord, do we pretend as though we have not a foe or that perhaps that foe uh, is so defeated as to not to not be any threat to us. I pray on the one hand, Lord, that that you would not let us live in fear, Father, but that you would help us to live soberly in light of reality. Help us, all of us here, to not be deceived by the schemes of the devil. Father, we thank you that you will allow nothing to happen to us, to our families, to to your church, than what you allow. And yet, Father, you do often allow, you do often allow even your own saints to fall into sin that they might learn to not trust in themselves. Oh, Father, may we not trust in ourselves. Satan is no match for Christ, but we are no match on our own for the devil or even the weakest demon. Would you make us sober-minded in that regard? We thank you for your protection, Father. We pray all these things in the name of Christ.